If you thought the TSA was bad, just wait until you hear how they do it on the Hogwarts Express. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for super commuters. As you will all be aware, after their search of the Hogwarts Express, our school is presently playing host to some of the Dementors of Azkaban, who are here on Ministry of Magic business. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to understand pleading or excuses. I therefore warn each and every one of you to give them no reason to harm you. I'm Heather Pricewright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to The Quibbler. Welcome to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Welcome to 2017. Welcome to the winter. It's episode 16. It is episode 16. The chapters we're reading are The Leaky Cauldron and The Dementor. Before we get going this week, we have a couple, well, one correction. So in the opening last week, we referred to James Potter as a seeker. He was actually a chaser. We were corrected by our lovely listener pal, Charlie, on Twitter. Charlie, thanks for cluing us into that. They do, in our moderate defense, refer to him as the seeker in the first film. Right, but it's not, can- well, yeah, it's not canon. Well, apparently J.K. Rowling has said that, oh, he was a chaser. But that kind of annoys me because only seekers matter. So way to give so, him no power in the game. So James was actually a far inferior Quidditch, Quidditch player, player to, to Harry. Harry. Because, yes, a, nothing, a chaser is an inherently nothing, inferior. Nothing James did in his entire Quidditch career mattered. Well, which is why he didn't grow up to be a professional Quidditch player. Well, somebody has to become a professional chaser, but... That's true. I mean, so this week, I have we cursed yet? Anyway, if we have, you already know. But uh, you're going to hear adult language and spoilers for the Harry Potter plots, books, movies, you name it. Extended universe. We've also got some adult themes. And this week, the adult themes will be retail therapy... Other people's pets, train delays, government leaks, and psychological torture. We are delayed because of Dementor traffic ahead of us. <laughs> that we was ap- good. We apologize for any inconvenience. The inconvenience being you are going to relive the worst moment of your life, which is basically what happens when my trains are delayed by the MTA. So <laughs> Dementor equals exactly the same as it takes a fuck ton of time to get to work and you're very hot and everybody smells. What happened in the chapters this week? In this week's chapters, Harry is relishing his newfound freedom on Diagon Alley. He basically gets to kick it at the Wizard Mall for, uh, is it three weeks? I think it's three weeks. In that time, he pounds a bunch of ice cream, does some window shopping, sees the newest, most badass broom imaginable, which is the Firebolt, which is aerodynamic. So wizards understand some aspects of physics, but they can't make light bulbs. He is joined by Ron and Hermione and the rest of the Weasley gang in tow, and they spend a very nice couple days together. The escape of Sirius Black, of course, is the talk of the alley, and Harry overhears... Mr. and Mrs. Weasley talking about whether Harry should be informed of the truth, which is that Sirius Black is out to kill him. Because Black thinks that by killing Potter, he could return Voldemort to power or something 
of that nature. Hermione buys a cat, Quirkshanks, at a pretty sweet magical pet emporium. Scabbers gets a checkup. He's not doing so hot. Scabbers doesn't pass his physical, but but Ron gets a bottle of rat tonic. The gang heads off to platform nine and three quarters in Ministry vehicles. The Ministry of Magic has provided Arthur Weasley like chauffeurs, basically. On the platform, Arthur tries to explain to Harry the deal with Sirius Black. Harry says, look, it's cool. I overheard. Now you don't have to worry about breaking your word to fudge. Arthur promised the Minister of Magic that he wouldn't let Harry in on the fact that Black is pursuing him and bent on murder. Arthur says, that's not all I have to tell you. I want you to swear to me that no matter what you hear, you won't go looking for Sirius Black. So that's intense. Harry has to rush to get on to, he gets on, he jumps on a moving train. The train is like pulling out of the station and Harry has to go leap onto it. That seems, I mean, just, just wait five more minutes. Till everyone's boarded, right? They can't. It has to leave right at 11 o'clock. Apparently By, so. By, like, magical decree. <laughs> anyway. That's the least dangerous thing that will happen to Harry this year. That's true. So Harry attempts to board a moving train and, you Succeeds. know. Yeah, he's fine. The train is nice. There's cauldron cakes. They find a nice empty compartment. And there's a very rundown, shabby-looking wizard with the name Professor R.J. Lupin on his suitcase. The train, you know, it's train times. There's, like, pumpkin juice and, like, nice shit like that. And all of a sudden, it stops. The lanterns go out, and it gets very cold. And dun-dun-dun, motherfucking Dementor enters the compartment. Harry has... Harry basically has a seizure. He hears, like, screaming, and his eyes go, like, foggy, and he blacks out. So he comes to, he finds out that everybody's real bummed out when the Dementor came in, but Harry was the only one who passed out. And Lupin woke up. Oh, Lupin had been sleeping this whole time. He's a really sleepy dude. Professor Lupin woke up and expelled the Dementor from the train car. Lupin gives everyone chocolate, which is, like... Dementor aspirin, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it makes you feel better. Yep. They arrive at school. They head to the Great Hall for the banquet. It's super rainy and stormy out, so, you know, atmospherics. Lupin is introduced by Albus Dumbledore as the as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, and boom, Hagrid has a promotion. He's the new Care of Magical Creatures teacher because uh, Professor Kettleburn has retired to spend more time with his remaining limbs, so... That's such a good line. Yeah. <laughs> I laughed out loud at that line, actually. Yeah, so there's a deleted grisly scene where... Uh, Professor Kettleburn mm. loses an arm and a leg to some kind of monster. Yeah, a lot of people have given more than an arm and a leg for Hogwarts, but... Uh, Word? Good you know. point. Anyway, so, oh, Professor McGonagall pulls Harry and Hermione aside to A, fuss over Harry and see if he's okay after the episode with the Dementor, and then to talk with Hermione in private about her course schedule for the year. Madame Pomfrey says some super logical shit about how there shouldn't be soul-sucking demons allowed around the school, and Harry heads up to bed, and he's like, home at last for poster an amazing way to sleep and that's where we are this week so he starts off in this kind of like kid fantasy in diagon alley which is a really nice part where harry just has three weeks where he gets to just be 
like he gets to basically like eat ice cream for breakfast and just like chill. It's actually an, a kid fantasy. These chapters are really enjoyable because if you're a kid, yeah, it is your fantasy. And there's that whole element of wish fulfillment there. But if you're an adult, it kind of reminds you of I, the first time your mom like left you at the mall to just wander around by yourself. And she's really good at evoking that first taste of freedom. Yeah, and it's the first time Harry has gotten to spend any time in the past several months around people uh, that don't exclusively hate him and wish that he had never existed. So that's a nice psychological break for Harry. (laughs) One thing I noticed, so uh, we meet the Firebolt, which is the new Nimbus 2001, which was the new Nimbus 2000, but it's like crazy good, like the most incredible racing broom ever. It's got all these like six specs and it says price upon request, which <laughs> anybody who has ever gone into like a designer clothing store means like if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Yeah. But here's the thing that actually kind of amazes me about this scene. Harry actually probably could afford it. And Harry is 13 years old and it kind of amazes me that Harry has the sense not to go into Gringotts, put all of his gold in like a giant like Santa bag and just be like, <laughs> just, whatever you want, you may have it. Just Give throw me it on. He just throws it on the table with like a heavy clunk. That seems like an enormous amount of self-control for a 13-year-old who like wants this racing broom. He says more than he's ever wanted anything. Kind of blows my mind. Which you'd think Harry would have had a lot of yearning in his life uh, growing up with the Dursleys. So that means he wants it a lot. Harry's actually not very materialistic. I think the Dursleys have perversely kind of cured him of materialism because he's watched Dudley be so perverted by getting everything he wants all the time. Oh, that's a good point. I think he's probably learned from Dudley that having unlimited access to the physical material objects of your heart's desire makes you like a totally disastrous moral being he doesn't come across as that covetous a person that's true so that makes this even more intense of a longing for the firebolt right um but the other thing is let's just throw harry's decision not to buy the firebolt In comparison with a, another recent financial decision that we've discussed. Yes, to kind of piggyback onto last week's discussion of the Weasley's financial planning skills, Harry at one point even says to himself, okay, I can't just empty my vault to buy a broom because I need this money to last me for my entire school career, at which point I will start to earn an income of my own. And... That's more financially responsible than I am sometimes. I feel like sometimes it's like the two days before paycheck and I'm like, hope I don't overdraw my checking account. Harry is planning for the next five years of his life. Right. No, Harry's thinking about the (laughs) fact that currently his uh, finances are finite which literally the Weasleys don't do. Yeah, yeah. Contrast that to the Weasleys, who win $86,000, uh, 700 galleons, in a newspaper sweepstakes, and then spend, in Ron's words, almost all of it on a family vacation instead of uh, saving, saving it, it. The way Harry's uh, saving it. <laughs> right. So we don't need to belabor, the, belabor this point, but I was just like, for a 13-year-old... That's an enormous amount of restraint. I would have bought the broom. 
Yeah. Like, if that's the other thing. Well, the other thing I was wondering is, how is Harry allowed to just go to the bank alone? Like, don't you need an adult to co-sign for you as, like, a 13-year-old just, like, shoveling gold into a bag? (laughs) I feel like I needed my parents to, like, you have, if you, like, write a check... If you're under 18, yeah, like, I remember, you can't sign your own checks. I remember having to go to the bank with my parents to deposit checks that I'd gotten for uh, There like is Christmas. no way that a muggle bank would be like, hey, 13-year-old, like, here's just like stacks on stacks yeah. on stacks for you. Here's $20,000. Which is, I think, the kind of money that Harry is taking out each year. Like, Harry's wealthy. <laughs> There's There is <laughs> more than the Weasley's $86,000 prize in Harry's vault. Also... You'd think there'd be more petty crime in the wizarding world since everyone is carrying cash. Yeah, all how come the time? nobody's robbing anybody? Maybe that's I guess because me- everyone's fucking carrying a gun. Yeah, everyone's packing. So it's like mutually assured destruction, basically. <laughs> it is. Well, I just was I, I was thinking like Fudge just leaves Harry utterly to his own devices. It's kind, it's like home alone. Like it really does have that kid fantasy element of yeah. you're just like you're just like throwing money around, ordering like room service, and just like. Except the difference is Kevin and Home Alone. He gets his parents' credit cards, right? Yeah, he puts all the room service on his parents' credit cards, and Harry is thinking to himself, "Well, I have to consider uh, where I'll be when I'm 18 years old." I know. I love Harry. Harry's just—he's such a reasonable bloke, except when he's the most not reasonable bloke so but weirdly he's really good with money yeah which makes me really glad for Ginny because she ends up with him and i'm sure they have like a very secure financial future but anyway (laughs) the other thing that there's two other things that i want to note about the diagon alley scene both of them in the flourish and blots portion first of all fucking leave it to hagrid to throw the entire bookstore into total abject chaos by ordering a book that can hurt people and each other the store of book like the supply of books is oh i know their inventory is slowly like (laughs) self-destructing which is hysterical no i just love that hagrid was like uh this is a very cute thing and it's like it doesn't even seem like it's a very good textbook it's like essentially like a novelty book and hagrid is like order hundreds of these all my students will need them and flourish and blots is like we're gonna fucking go out of business this thing is destroying our shop i think that's such a funny scene or like harry comes in and the guy's like are you from hogwarts and his face just like drains of blood and then harry is like no it's fine i already have the monster book of monsters and all of a sudden harry is this guy's like favorite customer because he's like oh thank god my entire day these days is spent just wrangling these books. Fighting books. And there's that really funny throwaway line where he's like, we haven't had this much trouble since we ordered the Invisible Book of Invisibility and we literally never found them. <laughs> that made me laugh. And the I, other thing that made me laugh in that... I liked oh, sorry. It with, oh, sorry. No, uh, go ahead. An, an ele- it's such a comic element, but it also... Wizards just don't think like muggles at all. I don't know. They think in this way that simultaneously really literal and also abstract whoever's making the invisible book of invisible like the super invisible book is like uh you know what this book should also be well clearly it should demonstrate invisibility you know or what if this monster book was actually a monster right but nobody's thinking through that's such a wizarding way of thinking (laughs) nobody's thinking through the like practical application of like wouldn't it be cool if 
It's like they're all children. It's like, what if your invisibility book was literally invisible? And it's like, well, then nobody could read it. But like the author of the invisible book didn't think of that. And that's how I justify Quidditch, basically. They can find enjoyment in these things or enjoyment and like a strange utility. An investment. Yeah, in things that make no earthly sense. Right. That's a good point. So the other thing I just wanted to briefly comment on in Flourish and Blots was so Harry has to get his divination textbook. And I just really like that the divination section of the bookstore is like when you go into like self-help in Barnes and Noble, the book titles made me laugh really hard. It's like Rowling obviously has this really savvy sense of publishing. And I just think it's funny to have this analog of these kind of lame self-help titles. So they're he sees in the section, it's like, predicting the unpredictable. Insulate yourself against shocks and broken balls when fortunes turn foul. And then he sees also the book with the grim on the cover, which is how he starts to think about this omen of death. And it's called Death Omens, What to Do When the Worst is Coming. And then the manager of the store says, oh, I wouldn't read that if I were you. You'll start seeing death omens everywhere. It's enough to frighten anyone to death. And Basically, I love, he's like, stay away from WebMD. Right, exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You do not want to look up your symptoms. Like, yeah. it will definitely say brain cancer. <laughs> um, I just thought that was, like, a really funny little detail. Uh, These, this whole chapter is sprinkled with funny details like that. Yeah. It's probably not meant this way, but future casting is really in right now among CEOs and businesses. So... Predicting the unpredictable. I'm sure there's like a Radio Lab episode called that, or like a TED Talk. Yeah, no, that seems like something that exists in our world. (laughs) Where they talk to like um, a futurist. Businesses are really into futurism right now, where they're trying to game out every awful thing that could happen to their business. Well, I know uh, where they could find some books on the topic. Yeah, so just tap a brick behind a seedy ass pub in London, and you'll you'll find everything you need. It kind of it kind of reminds me of that too. So anyway, that's it's funny. The, uh, is there like a Nate Silver book in there? It's like, <laughs> Just the five thirty eight yeah. is like Donald Trump might win. Nate Silver's like, uh, there's only a forty percent chance of Voldemort returning at this point, and then when Pettigrew gets free, it goes up to like sixty five or something like that. So anyway. <laughs> Nate Silver. Of, uh, uh, that was a good Nate, Nate. Silver kind of sounds like a wizard name a bit. It Yeah, it kind of does. Except it would be like his name. It would be Nathaniel. Nathaniel Silver. Uh-huh. Unfogging the Future by Nathaniel Silver. Damn! I mean... We're gonna Photoshop that yeah. and make a post on Instagram of that book. So, Get anyway. Get ready. Little, uh... Little Nate Silver humor there. <laughs> to, uh, to um, wet your whistle. So here's the thing that I want to talk about, and I have so many notes on this that you actually might have to stop me because I got kind of weirdly obsessed. I want to talk about pets, and more broadly, I want to talk about animals. This is the first time reading this series that I think I really realized how fundamental a role animals play in the Harry Potter universe. I always knew that they had animal companions and that there was this there were kind of these familiars. But this is the first time I've really started thinking about pets and animals mm-hmm. in the wizarding world. And now I feel like I could fucking write a dissertation on it. I have so many thoughts. There's this glorious scene where they enter the magical menagerie. I was making chili and Heather ran into the kitchen to read aloud this section where Ron, Harry, and Hermione walk into 
The Magical Menagerie. Like Magic Petco. It, <laughs> it's called the Magical Menagerie. There wasn't much room inside. Every inch of wall was hidden by cages. It was smelly and very noisy because the occupants of these cages were all squeaking, squawking, jabbering, or hissing. The witch behind the counter was already advising a wizard on the care of double-ended newts. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione waited, examining the cages. A pair of enormous purple toads sat gulping wetly and feasting on dead blowflies. A gigantic tortoise with a jewel-encrusted shell was glittering near the window. Poisonous orange snails were oozing slowly up the side of their glass tank, and a fat white rabbit kept changing into a silk top hat and back again with a loud popping noise. Then there were cats of every colour, a noisy cage of ravens, a basket of funny, custard-coloured fur balls that were humming loudly, and on the counter, a vast cage of sleek black rats that were playing some sort of skipping game using their long, bald tails. So a lot of this book centers on animals, actually. Mm-hmm. And it does turn out that some of those animals are animagus, humans transformed into animals. But even so, I think that a thing that I never realized before, but that J.K. Rowling seems to understand really intuitively and write about really nicely is this sense that less divides us from animals than we think. And she occupies this space between the concepts of human and animal in a way that's really, really interesting. And so I want to talk, this is, I don't know, maybe a little alienating, but there's this incredible Derrida essay. It's not an essay. It was actually given as a lecture. It's like 10 hours long, and it was released in French, I think in the early 2000s, and then in English. And who is Derrida? Derrida is a... He's like a... He's like I a, know, I know. Well, do actually, you? <laughs> I was like, uh, explain for the listeners who Derrida is, so um, that uh, I've heard the name, but he's like a I postmodernist philosopher. Okay, so well, he has shit this. Just got postmodern. Yeah, I'm sorry, but no, this. I promise you that this yeah. is relevant. We could talk about alienation too, and that would be really alienating for uh, people. Listeners. There you no. go. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. So Derrida is a philosopher, a French philosopher, and. He had this super long lecture that was then um, released as a book called The Animal That I Therefore Am, which is basically an exploration of the ways in which philosophers that came before him, he talks about Descartes, somebody also talks about like Heidegger and a lot of other philosophers have made an assumption about the strict difference between the human animal and animals that he finds to be limiting. And so he kind of like explores this liminal space, which he says is more of a chasm than people think, wherein animal and human meet. And he refers to that which we call animal and that which we call human in order to kind of underscore the point that he thinks that those distinctions are blurry, if not, entirely useless how so well just we kind of make assumptions about our own in our human ability to do things like conceptualize self and feel pain and all the all these things that we take for granted as to as exclusively human emotions he questions that and a lot of people these days are questioning that there's actually a whole new interdisciplinary field called animal studies that among other things takes up 
questions of intersectionality in social justice and actually includes animal rights in discussions of intersectional rights. So animals as less different from us than we have conceived of in the past is kind of a new site of philosophical and social thought and research. And weirdly, I think Rowling in these books kind of like saw that, even though obviously these books aren't like, I'm not making an argument that this is like about Derrida's arguments. I'm just saying. Right, just thing that she's picked up but on. But she, I think, has this innate and beautiful sense that our relationship with animals is a lot more similar and a lot more mutually emotional than we sort of conceive of. And one of the things I really like about that is that actually connects these books more strongly to lots of kind of ancient traditions of magic and mysticism because the familiars well okay there's the familiars but i actually but i actually think it goes beyond familiars there's a lot if you think about the imagery of magic but i think specifically like female centered witchcraft Mm -hmm. in a lot of different cultures and traditions animal magic and earth magic and sort of like mysticism arising from the powers of the natural world are centered in a lot of those um, traditions and narratives. So the relationships that human wizards have with animals, I think, harken back to a lot of the, a lot of cultural conceptions of magic from around the world in a, in a way that I find really cool. It's interesting, for example, that in this book, one of the central conflicts is between two animals and the human's have a really, really, really hard time interpreting that conflict, but it still influences the human world in a really profound way, like Crookshanks versus Scabbers. And it's hysterical, but it's also really beautiful. That's one of the central conflicts in this novel. Yeah, Like Their battle is also one of the things that most profoundly influences the relationship between their human companions. And Ron's devotion to Scabbers is, among other things, inexplicable. Unless you are someone who has had a pet and understand that you can have a gross, moldy-looking rat who turns out to be evil. (laughs) Um, But you can develop a really profound relationship with non-humans. So I just... And that always struck me about Ron is that he loves scabbers, but he doesn't really like scabbers uh, in an interesting... That's but that's a very that's a very human relationship. Right. I mean, loving mm-hmm. but not really liking. Scabbers is a member of the Weasley right. family mm-hmm. in a way that is more complex than most people write about pets. I'm also just very impressed with the depth of feeling with which J.K. Rowling writes about pets. I think that's missing in the vast majority of literature, but I also think that just even from like anecdotal experience People's relationships with their pets are often the most important relationships in their lives and nobody should dismiss that and she writes about that with real compassion. This whole novel, and we're we're gonna talk about this a lot because this whole novel is about animals honestly as much as it's about people. And it's about the ways in which humans and animals are connected. Sirius survives Azkaban because he's able to connect with an animal spirit inside of him. You well, know, I almost got a tear. <laughs> my, I hadn't really even. Oh man, that's way later in the novel, but I think that underscores the point. Yeah, well, serious. I got chills just serious, uh, thinking about it that way. Serious's ability to connect with what in him is animalistic 
allows him to survive unsurvivable human emotions. So I think we're going to be talking about this a lot in this particular novel. And I think one of the things that I'm learning for the first time, and I've read this book probably 30 or 40 times straight through. Like this is the one I've read over and over and over. And this is the first time I'm understanding the profound connections that she makes to animals in this book. Oh my god, Remus as werewolf too. Right. No, yeah. this book is about animalistic natures. This book is about the complex spaces between our human and animal urges. This book is about the connections that we bear to the natural world that we try to suppress within us because they are sometimes expressed as violence. Also, this is a fucking beautiful and profound book. Yeah, I'm just- Whew. Well, I didn't think I could like this book more. Yeah, I didn't either. And then I started <laughs> thinking about this and I was like, oh my God, this is one of the coolest themes in Harry Potter. And I've been reading and rereading and reading and rereading Harry Potter for more than a decade. And I had never thought about this before. And I was like, I am excited about this book all over again. Wow. It was fucking bananas. I'm so stoked. So let's talk about Sirius a little bit because... Let's- you know, as we said in the last episode, right away, he's this looming presence. And uh, I actually switch back as I'm reading between kind of like knowing that Sirius is good and kind of pretending that I don't know. <laughs> so this book can... is better if you try to like empty that knowledge from your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was actually wondering how you were reading this. Yeah, I, I always reread it. Um, trying to have as blank a slate of, as possible about that right. because it's much more exciting if you um, if you start from zero with Sirius because there is this other Sirius Black character that's in everyone's minds who's also a very compelling character even though he's not even though it's like it's not real yeah I actually think rereading is really exciting because you do get to hold that duality in your mind and it makes it a much richer tapestry of a novel because you get to think simultaneously about kind of like shadow serious and true serious Mm -hmm. and it's kind of fun to read with that knowledge. Right. Yeah. So that was one question I had for you is how are you thinking about serious going back and rereading this book. Uh, Actually, that's a question. If you guys want to yeah. email us or tweet us or whatever message you sending apparatus you prefer, I would. I'm really cu- curious to know how rereaders take the serious journey, knowing what ends up happening in this book. So, right. if you have any thoughts on this, like I would love it if you guys would send those to us because that's a really interesting question. And that's a more interesting question in this book than in most of them. Yes. Because the switcheroo is so crazy. I mean, it's up there with the great Snape twist. It is one of the better, it is one of the big, mm-hmm. the, the better twists in the so, series. So, um, yeah, that's, so that's something I'm curious about because, uh, I, what should we call him evil Sirius or? I think we should just refer to him in like linear time. So yeah. right now okay. Sirius is bad guy so, Sirius. Bad guy Sirius is... We learn, in these two chapters, we learn a bit more about him through Molly and Arthur's overheard conversation and just the chatter around Diagon Alley. And the idea of this Voldemort zealot who is hell-bent on killing Harry Potter is more frightening than the Basilisk, in my mind. and Or even uh, pseudo-resurrected Tom Riddle or Two-Face 
Quirrell. It's a really compelling, I'm thinking, I, I, I don't know. It's just like this idea of like the Darth Vader to Voldemort's like Emperor Palpatine is like really, it's really cool and scary. And the fact that the whole wizarding world is on lockdown because this guy got out is really evocative. I think Sirius serves a couple of interesting purposes in the early parts of the book. He re-centers Harry in the Wizarding World. The fact that everyone in the entire Wizarding World is in danger specifically because Sirius Black would like to kill Harry Potter heightens the stakes of Harry's whole existence in a way that's really interesting because Harry is, he's not to blame in that he had any agency over this, but... It's a complicated, it's it's hard for Harry to have to live in a world in which he's constantly a liability. Yeah. Because like his very presence in the lives, and you know, Harry has this experience over and over in the books and it's really, it's really exciting and it deepens the stakes because Harry's very existence in the presence of the people he loves threatens their safety. And that is more true in this book than the first two books because you know from the very start that anywhere Harry is, Sirius Black is trying to be killing bitches. Right. That gives the tension to the scene with the Ministry cars because Arthur is basically hired bodyguards for his whole family. And it says a lot about the characters of Molly and Arthur because I mean, their family is the most important thing to them in the world, obviously. Like, the Weasley family dynamic is... Right really powerful. They're not just going to kick Harry to to the curb. They like have Well, I think that Molly is never lying or exaggerating even once in these books when she says that Harry is another son to them at this point. Yeah. Harry has been totally integrated into the Weasley family identity. Right. So and and Harry can kind of tell that Arthur is not being super truthful about why they are having cars take them. Right. Well, okay, so here's this is not, I guess it's kind of a quibble. It's like a, this is, you know, an old standby of ours. But it made me laugh. Arthur and Molly are having this whole conversation that Harry overhears in the bar of the Leaky Cauldron where they're trying to decide whether it's best to tell Harry what's going on with Sirius or not. And Molly is on the side of, no, let's not tell him. He'll be happier and safer, safer not knowing. And she says, the thing that people always fucking say, which is like, oh, <laughs> is it's Is in the fine. bar or are they in their room and he's overhearing No, no, no. He's Because oh, remember, he's going down to get the rat Oh, tonic. you're right. Okay. No, so they're out. So Molly says, Arthur, you must do it what you think is right. Excuse me. She says, Arthur, you must do what you think is right, but you're forgetting Albus Dumbledore. Um, I underlined this. I don't think anything could hurt Harry at Hogwarts. Well, Dumbledore's headmaster. Um, well, Molly... <laughs> Harry has been alone in caves with Voldemort twice. And your daughter. Right. Your almost dead daughter. Was kidnapped by Voldemort. the spirit of Tom Riddle. Literally under Dumbledore's nose. <laughs> I don't understand why. Te- technically, Dumbledore had been removed from the school at this point. Dumbledore knew what was happening. The idea that Dumbledore can protect literally anyone you know, a flea in the halls, the hallowed halls of Hogwarts is absurd. <laughs> and then Harry thinks that too later. Harry's like, oh no, I'll be fine. Dumbledore's there. And it's like, what? That hasn't ever helped you. 
But like uh, you're just it, it's like the definition of insanity. Like you keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Dumbledore will not save you. This this conversation between the Weasleys is a really fundamental discussion about it's like a big question in parenting. How much do you tell your kids about what's out there? Yeah. And when is it yeah. It's true. Yeah, when are you Yeah, what what's the trade-off between the whole truth and uh, you know, allowing them to feel like safe, you know, and when do you make those decisions? Right. So, I mean, I can't answer that not as a parent, but I But Mo- I think Mo- Molly is not giving Harry enough credit because Harry has never felt safe. Harry right. has lived his entire life A under the abusive tyranny of his aunt and uncle. But B, even since he found out he was a wizard, Harry knows for sure that the most dangerous wizard in history wants to kill him and has tried multiple times in person. Right. Like, Harry has never felt safe. Right. And and he kind of explains this to Arthur. He's like, yeah. look, man. He's like, uh, I think I got this. I got, yeah, I got this. Uh, Don't worry. Nah, dog, I'm good. So the threat of Sirius leads us to the Dementors, which the Ministry of Magic has called. So the Dementors guard Azkaban, and now they're on a manhunt for Sirius Black. This is one of those cases where, of the idiom where the cure is worse than the disease, kind of. Right. Because the presence of Dementors in the wizarding world is substantially more damaging than the relatively minor threat that Sirius poses. Actually, even well, if you mean, believe evil Sirius exists, well, I mean the question. He's one guy. Well, the question is: Is Sirius a minor threat? Could Sirius go become a new Voldemort if he was the second in command? Like, uh, I don't think Sirius is a minor threat. Right. If he's going to show up and massacre dozens of people to get the Harry Potter. Then that's a pretty that's like a pretty existential threat. Well, so this is the basic debate that we have in our society. Like, what? freedoms and comforts are we willing to give up to combat the shadowy possibility of even larger destruction right and that's really in the dementors and especially in this book i see some terrorism analogs even though this is a pre-9-11 book it's very much about the choices societies make in the face of existential threats and of course you know terrorism existed in the 1990s and well before that so uh it's also not an american book so we're not talking about specifically like the patriot act for example right right but But she has a good that's relevant yeah yeah you know right no so i mean there's this question of like how much lack of freedom how much lack of autonomy how much discomfort how much fear are we willing to give up slash live under in order to be doing quote unquote like everything necessary to combat this one specific scary but not particularly concrete threat? And how much do you compromise your own values? Because everyone has a, everyone seems to on some level realize that using Dementors is not moral or maybe not even not is it moral or everyone's on everyone's uncomfortable with it to a certain extent i think a lot of people wonder whether it's moral to have dementors interact with regular law-abiding citizens considering that they 
are unable to... What's weird about Dementors is they're unable to just turn off their torture device. Right. They torture everyone. Yeah. The same way that they would torture a prisoner. Like, everyone experiences the exact level of discomfort, fear, agony that the prisoner would Mm -hmm. experience being in their presence. Well, Arthur, you must do what you think is right, but you're forgetting Albus Dumbledore. I don't think anything could hurt Harry at Hogwarts while Dumbledore's headmaster. I suppose he knows about all this. Of course he knows. We had to ask him if he minds the Azkaban guards stationing themselves around the entrances to the school grounds. He wasn't happy about it, but he agreed. Not happy? Why shouldn't he be happy if they're there to catch Black? Dumbledore isn't fond of the Azkaban guards, said Mr. Weasley heavily. Nor am I, if it comes to that. But when you're dealing with a wizard like Black, you sometimes have to join forces with those you'd rather avoid. If they save Harry, then I will never say another word against them, said Mr. Weasley wearily. It's late, Molly. We'd better go up. They, as a family, have decided that the Dementor presence is worth it. But to be fair, like, they don't have to fucking deal with the Dementors. That's true. You know, it's weird that the punishment is also centered on Harry, even though nominally the Dementors are there to protect him. It's strange that... It's not strange. It's actually beautiful and incredibly elegant construction of this novel that the very thing present specifically and exclusively to protect Harry is Harry's great torment in this novel. Mm-hmm. He is substantially less freaked out about Black than he is afraid of ever encountering a Dementor again after that first encounter on the train, which is hideously traumatic. Yes. So here's the other thing we have to talk about with the Dementors. J.K. Rowling has said and written that she constructed the Dementors after experiencing a serious depression. Or has, I think, has gone through serious depressions at various points in her life. I think she's somebody who struggles with depression and has written about that and talked about it in interviews. And she created the Dementors to physicalize and manifest the experience of um, severe mental illness. So that's amazing, kind yeah. of. Yeah. That is incredibly brave. Deeply affecting. So the Dementors come aboard and all of the kids suffer. Everybody feels the effects of the Dementors. Ron says that he felt cold and weak and like he'd never be happy again. Harry bears the brunt of it. Harry passes out. Harry has this fit. Ginny, they say, is shaking like mad. kind of rocking back and forth and... uh... And Neville has a particularly strong reaction and a particularly extreme experience with the Dementors. So I love about the Dementors as they're written that they are this incredible way of expressing how lingering trauma is. Because the characters whose trauma in their lives has been greatest are the ones least able to resist the effects of the Dementors. So it's just this incredibly elegant way of writing about the way that trauma lives in our bodies and 
springs up in response to hardship in ways that we have a really, really hard time controlling. It triggers them. Standing in the doorway, illuminated by the shivering flames in Lupin's hand, was a cloaked figure that towered to the ceiling. Its face was completely hidden beneath its hood. Harry's eyes darted downward, and what he saw made his stomach contract. There was a hand protruding from the cloak, and it was glistening, grayish, slimy-looking, and scabbed, like something dead that had decayed in water. But it was visible only for a split second. As though the creature beneath the cloak sensed Harry's gaze, the hand was suddenly withdrawn into the folds of its black cloak. And then the thing beneath the hood, whatever it was, drew a long, slow, rattling breath, as though it were trying to suck something more than air from its surroundings. An intense cold swept over them all. Harry felt his own breath catch in his chest. The cold went deeper than his skin. It was inside his chest. It was inside his very heart. Harry's eyes rolled up into his head. He couldn't see. He was drowning in cold. There was a rushing in his ears as though of water. He was being dragged downward, the roaring growing louder. And then, from far away, he heard screaming, terrible, terrified, pleading screams. He wanted to help whoever it was. He tried to move his arms, but couldn't. A thick white fog was swirling around him, inside him. Harry! Harry! Are you all right? Someone was slapping his face. What? What? It's interesting, because, yeah, I actually, I wrote that down. It, yeah, it, they're basically triggers. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like a PTSD trigger for Harry. Mm-hmm. Which is incredible to write about for kids, because it's like, it's actually, it's weird, but it's kind of this beautiful message of, like, your pain is real, which somebody like that, even though... It's scary, like, that's such a relief to hear. And even if it's in the past, it can be revived in right. ways that feel the same as... And actually, you know, Harry doesn't have... It's not a conscious memory. It's, not a, it's in the very deepest recesses of his brain, but he knows enough about it to the, where the experience of it is, like, real. It's defined right. everything well, in his life up to up to this point and he knows enough about Voldemort and he's had experiences with Voldemort that uh well it's also interesting I mean it actually takes Harry it's kind of like therapy in this like fucked up way because it actually takes Harry a really long time to realize what he's hearing in his head when the Dementors come near him mm. because he learns oh they 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 bring up the worst experiences of our lives and only much later is Harry able to actually do the discernment to figure out that it's his mother's death that he's hearing. So he can experience the pain and the trauma without even being able to identify this scene that he's reliving. Yeah. Which is really profound. Yeah. And oh, that therapy is like, yeah, in a fucked up way. But kind of. I mean, it's like regress. It's or it's like um, what is it called? It's like he brings up repressed memories, basically. Yeah, which is and one ha- of the reasons for therapy. You know, and there hasn't been much dealing in these books up to this point with the fact that his parents were I mean, murdered in front of him. Yeah, he's the child of. He's a homicide survivor. Right. Um. People talk about it a lot, but Harry hasn't been able to. Harry has actually hasn't 
the Dementors are weirdly an opportunity for Harry because Harry hasn't had the chance to work through it and there are no wizard therapists. Certainly not. <laughs> so the Dementors are basically Harry's only chance to get through to the other side of those repressed memories. It's kind of interesting. They serve this kind of dual purpose of being like truly chilling, but also kind of a, like a, they have almost a lightning effect on him at some point. I also think that she just writes, we talked about this in the last episode, but she she writes really well and really insightfully about the kind of comparative damage of psychic versus physical violence. Because there's not a ton of physical violence in this book yet. Right. But Harry may as well be getting the shit beat out of him, considering the impact on his overall well-being. So I think she um, she centers the ability of psychic violence to hurt us, just in a way that's really true to life. And again, also really useful for kids to hear. Like, psychic pain is real, and like you have every right to express it as real. And nobody has a right to tell you that what you're feeling isn't true because it's in your head as opposed to in your flesh. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, this scene is far more harrowing than when his bone is broken in the Quidditch match. That's so true. His experiences of physical pain are um, they hurt. not dwelled upon. Yeah. No, they hurt, but he's fine. Mm-hmm. No, he can deal with pain. Here's the other thing that I think we should just maybe briefly talk about because like... This is where, well, this is where I'm at right now. Um, I am somebody who suffers from serious long-term clinical depression. And um, the Dementors are the most effective metaphoric rendering of that experience that I have ever read in adult or children's literature in my entire life. And um, I honestly, like, I'm sorry if this is too heavy, but... I want to give her a huge amount of credit and thanks for writing about it. I think that's extraordinary. I feel seen by these books, which is crazy because they're for children. But like the Dementors and the fact that the Dementors perfectly express what it's like to be harrowingly depressed. Um, they make me feel real and seen and heard. I think that's one of the I think that's one of the most important things you could do with storytelling yeah and especially I'm the first time that I had a major depressive episode I was about Harry's age I mean I've been dealing with this since I was about 13 or 14 the first time that I was like nothing is okay and nothing will ever be okay again and like I probably shouldn't be on this earth anymore I was about Harry's age so I remember you know, like, these are important. This is important work from somebody to tell kids and to give them a a way of thinking about what they're feeling and also, like, through Harry, through Lupin, through learning the Patronus charm, through the outcome of this book, um, you learn that things are going to be okay and you learn that there are tools. And um, The chocolate is a great example of that. And not just... Not in an eating your feelings sort of way, but for every one of these wrenching scenes Rowling gives us, she also finds these opportunities for incredible gentleness and self-care. Yeah. And I'm thinking that the chocolate is one 
example, but uh, there are these other kind of almost cozy scenes yeah. where she points the way to finding the things and spaces that help you like deal basically and heal like when harry sees the four poster bed and thinks that he's thinks to himself like i'm home yeah or just finding the opportunities for you know gentleness and and sucre sucre. yeah no i think you're right these books are about that uh and I well. think they say in a really subtle and in a very non-didactic, but in a really helpful way, like, there are gajillions of things to, like, stick around for. Right. Like, you want to get through the Dementor attack because there's chocolate at the end of it. That's a sweet, sweet message. And also, I gotta say, the chocolate, we won't linger on this too long because we will be able to talk about him lots, but the chocolate is a great opportunity for Remus Lupin to appear and immediately be fucking phenomenal. I love that Madame Pomfrey, when she hears that Lupin dished out chocolate to alleviate the Dementor effects, she says, thank God we finally have a defense against the dark arts teacher who knows what the fuck they're doing, basically. She says fuck, which is crazy. (laughs) She doesn't, Doesn't but she probably basically does. Uh, One other note about the Dementor scene, that uh, this is just props to Rowling for her kind of plot construction. It's the perfect place to introduce this new baddie and uh, even like thematically and just as characters because the Hogwarts Express is this cozy, safe place. You know, they're, in book one, it's where he, you know, he meets all his friends. He eats like a shit ton of candy for the first time. In book two, they're flying over the Hogwarts Express wishing they were down there pounding pumpkin juice. (laughs) Uh, And in book three, it shows that these forces can invade these spaces and... It does. Take it like, you know, like fuck everything up for you, basically. Yeah, it does. So I I, I think Which is really true to life because you can feel horrifying... Even in, well, it's like the first time you're, okay, not you, that I'm, I'm going to use I words now. It's like the first time I was ever like really depressed at Christmas time. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. You're not supposed to be allowed to be depressed at Christmas time. So it's like, oh yeah, the, no, the Dementors can get into your candy mobile. Yeah. They and, can and, infiltrate anything. And just as plot construction, you don't expect them to be you attacked really on don't. the Hogwarts Express. No, it's a very surprising where it's scene. Very, when the lights go off. It's and, scary. Yeah, it's a. It's like chilling, literally. It's really evocative. Anyway. Um, Moving on from that. Sorry, that was dark. Whatever, so, it's a dark scene. So Hagrid got a promotion. Aw, buddy. So he's the care of magical creatures teacher. And everybody now. gets to be like, oh my god, that's why our book is a monster. <laughs> Hagrid thanks Hermione, Ron, and Harry for clearing his name, which allowed him to get this job. Does that mean he gets to practice magic now? I mean, it must. I don't think he could be a care of magical creatures teacher without a wand, yeah. right? I don't know. Just but it's a... weird because he's not qualified. Yeah, he has no... <laughs> like, Double... he's only a third-year wizard. Uh, yeah, but he's he's really qualified to teach this particular subject. Think of him less as, like, a full-on associate professor and more of an... Think of him more as an adjunct. He's like a shop teacher. 
Yeah. But I think even shop teachers have to learn, like, pedagogy. Yeah, but he's, like, uh, it's, like, technical. It's just weird. It's, like, you should probably let Hagrid go back to school. Like, maybe teach Hagrid, like, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh year magic. I know, but Dumbledore's just, like, you're the man, Hagrid. Although maybe he's, like, picked it up. I mean, maybe he's got, like, basically a wizard GED. Yeah. Like, he can go kind of do an accelerated course. Maybe he took a quick spell course. No, Quickspell doesn't work. Oh, yeah, you're it's for right. squibs. That's the Trump University of Although, to magic. be fair, okay, I guess to be fair to Hagrid, he seems pretty capable of doing magic because every time he sort of, like, wink-wink does something with his pink umbrella, like, it works. He probably is fine at magic. Maybe Dumbledore has been, like, tutoring him on the sly. I don't know. Because he can do magic. You know? He, like, gets that fucking boat off of the horrifying island that Uncle Dursley takes him to, like, via magic. <laughs> Hagrid doesn't seem totally incompetent as a wizard. Yeah. Is there anything yeah. else we want to say about Hagrid? No, it's nice that he gets to be a teacher. Yeah. He does end up being pretty unqualified. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I, I love Hagrid, but he's really not an excellent educator. So, you know, this might not actually have been that good a staffing decision. Well. Oh my God, but it's like his dream come true. So. Yeah. You know. That's nice. Make a wish. Yeah. Oh, he's not dying. No, I know. Uh, <laughs> Who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero for these chapters is Florian Fortescue, who gives Harry Sundays every half hour? That's so much ice cream. He's going to get sick. Yeah. Ice cream Sunday is like a thousand calories. <laughs> Harry's just knocking back Sundays, doing his homework. Also amazing that Fortescue is this amateur historian who has a lot of opinions about medieval witch burning. So mm. he's just this history buff serving ice cream. Also, mad props to Fortescue for setting up what appears to be just your normal, like a regular ass ice cream store. Yeah, he's just a small business owner. Yeah, on Diagon Alley. He's like, I, I don't need to sell magic stuff. Ice cream is good on its own. It does- Although I'm sure they have some- sort of magical themed like flavors. Yeah, well. But still, yeah. Basically, he's just a regular-ass small business owner. Yeah, he's just like, I just happen to be uh, a wizard. A wizard. This stuff does not, like... I assume he makes it using magic. Yeah, absolutely. Like, he doesn't, like, hand crank it. There's some kind of magical ice cream maker. Well, Mrs. Weasley cooks with magic. That's true. So there's clearly, like, magic. There's, like, kind of home magic. Like, home ec magic. But yeah, he's great. Also, Harry just gets lots of free shit as Harry Potter. Yeah, that's true. Which is true. also excellent because that happens to celebrities all the time. Yeah, that's it's the, the people part. that have it's the people that have money that get the most free stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, that's true. So mine are Fred and George because we didn't talk about this because it's not that important yet. But um, Percy is head boy, and Fred and George are disgusted and they're so mean to him so many times, and their pranks are so super funny at one point they steal his head boy badge to make it say big head boy and (laughs) that's less funny to me than they just like razz him in this hilarious way so the first time he sees harry back from the holidays he does this weird like glad handy like harry my good fellow like so so good to have made your acquaintance like he's like the mayor (laughs) and so then fred and george do this really funny bit where they're like just chuffing old chap (laughs) Like, kind of clapping him on the shoulder. I don't know. They just make fun of Percy in these very funny ways, and they they crack me up in these chapters. So, good for you for, like, taking him down a peg. They're probably our unsung heroes for the entire series. 
like just overall. Oh yeah, no, they're amazing. Yeah, but they're I, gonna I up, think they're, they're very. They're gonna end up our most unsung, probably. Which makes them pretty sung, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, they're so funny in these chapters, though. They're so mean to Percy. It's great. I also like the magical menagerie owner who asks Ron what Scabber's powers are. And Ron's like, I don't know. He rolls over or whatever. (laughs) She's like, why don't you get a sick-ass magic rat? They can do something. (laughs) Like, oh, it's just a rat? Yeah. What are you even bringing this to me for? The rats are, like, doing, they're skipping and doing, uh, what are they? They're doing, like, they're, they're doing, like, jump rope with their tails. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Showing up. And Ron says, show-offs. Um, okay, that's it for me. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Florian Fortescue's Ice Cream Parlor. Come for the ice cream. Stay for the discussion of medieval witch burning. Next week, we are reading... God, I'm so excited. Every chapter in this book is my favorite chapter. We're reading Talons and Tea Leaves and The Bogart in the Wardrobe. So among other things, we're going to meet Professor Trelawney, which is going to be so fun. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio, uh, Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, we got a new review this week from someone I think we don't know, so thank you. No, we know you because you're our listener and you're nice. We just oh, maybe have never doesn't... met you in our real lives. Yeah, someone who's not... Just our friend. Blood relation. Yeah, or my feels, mom. <laughs> uh, press gang. Hi, mom. Too. Hi. Anyway, but do that. Rate and review the podcast. Um, It really really makes us excited every time we get a new one of those please go give us five stars and leave a sweet review like so many of you already have also subscribe so you actually get the podcast when it comes out and you don't have to go searching for it there's been some pretty good instagrams at quibbler podcast and some pretty good tweets at quibbler podcast also we have a newsletter there hasn't been one of those in a while but it's coming back we promise tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. Also, if you want to write to us, and specifically, I actually really do mean if you want to tell us how you reread this book, Conceiving of Sirius Black. If you want to answer that question, um, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Thanks, amigos. Bye-bye. I'm not going to be murdered. Harry said out loud. That's the spirit, dear, said his mirror sleepily.